Bond Show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And what a great day it is and what a great nation it is, despite the fact that uh, one of our prominent politicians says we are about to become the new Venezuela. Why? How? Because uh, there is a dispute over... Uh, an election where the candidate who had that to say was unsuccessful. She lost by 17,000 votes. Okay, another frustrated candidate actually took matters into his own hands. He believes he um, was also cheated, but to be instead of actually going through the legal processes, he hired uh, four people and had them take shots at his... Um, other party rivals. Thank God no one was killed. And I, it, it is rather remarkable they described this guy, his name is Solomon Pena, as a mastermind. We will get to that story. The fact is that uh, we now have two presidents with a special prosecutor assigned to their handling of top secret documents, President Trump, of course, and President Biden. And rather than going through all of these differences and distinctions, and yes, of course, there are many distinctions, and yes, of course, I think anyone uh, would understand that what is alleged against President Trump is more serious, but the truth is, isn't it disgusting on all sides? I mean, is this really what our politics is going to be about for the next, what, six months, next year? Could be two years. Some of these special councils that people appoint that get assigned to presidents hang around and hang around and hang around, and it goes on and on and on and on, all consuming taxpayer money. Speaking of taxpayer money, are we headed toward a fiscal crisis over this debt ceiling where Janet Yellen says it could be days, at most weeks, before we bump up against the debt ceiling and she has to start moving money around? We're going to be talking to Peter Coy, economics writer of the New York Times, about the debt ceiling crisis and what it really means. And then we're going to be speaking to a law professor who uh, just did a brilliant piece, which I think blows a hole and a, a major hole in this whole idea of uh, racial classifications in America, of unequal treatment based upon the shade of your skin the nature of your ancestry. Is that appropriate? Uh, well, there's a bill. Uh, actually, it's a proposal from a commission in San Francisco, and they're serious. San Francisco's Board of Supervisors created the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee in December of 2020. They're out with their recommendations now, and they include a $5 million lump payment to any individual who can prove that he is identified or she is identified as black for 10 years or more. So I, I, I don't know if that includes Rachel Dolezal because you just have to prove that you've identified as black and then that you've lived in San Francisco for a certain period. Uh, so you have to put up with the city by the Golden Gate to get your $5 million payoff. All of this is madness. And to just go back for a moment to what is going on with the two special prosecutors, people ask me about that. People seem to be interested. And uh, the truth of the matter is 
nothing is going to come out of either of these prosecutions. There are serious prosecutions that President Trump is dealing with. Uh, They have to do with January 6th, which was a serious matter. And uh, that can be a real problem for President Trump. I think, frankly, the prosecuting prosecution is going through in New York. Uh, New York State prosecution where for his business dealings and misleading banks and other fraudulent business practices, he could be fined not the $1.6 million that was already placed against Trump companies, but $250 million. This is the Letitia James prosecutions. That's a serious matter. The Georgia prosecutions about trying to steal an election. Those prosecutions are serious. And yes, the January 6th prosecutions of so many people, of uh, 900 so far, uh, there also is involvement and potential prosecution for seditious conspiracy. Now, all that's serious. Uh, Basically taking a bunch of documents, and who the heck knows what it is President Trump intended to do with those documents and the boxes and why he wouldn't return them to the National Archives. I'm sure we're going to find out But honest to goodness, this is not going to wreck his campaign. It's not going to destroy his place in history. There's plenty, plenty of other things you can bring up. And the idea that this is the end of Biden, that this somehow shows that Biden was uh, taking bribes from Ukraine through his son. I, I mean, it's preposterous. There's actually a very, very useful background piece that's written by Peter Baker over at The Times. And it's uh, under the heading, Presidents, Prosecutors, and a Bond in History. And it says, two years ago, President Biden joined the world's most exclusive club. That's the club of U.S. presidents. Only 45 people have been members of that club. The, uh, this week, he joined a less exalted club, but in the modern era, one almost as large. The appointment of a special counsel to investigate the discovery of classified documents in Mr. Biden's home and private office makes him the latest occupant of the Oval Office to be scrutinized by a special prosecutor. This is a reminder that it's not rare. Every president since Richard Nixon, which is a lot of presidents, it's Richard Nixon, uh, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, uh, George H.W. Bush, and on, They all, every single one, except one exception, had a special prosecutor they had to deal with, or in some cases, multiple special prosecutors. Reagan, as great as he was, had a multiplicity of them. Now, they didn't lead any indictments of President Reagan, and uh, frankly, none of this had tremendously serious consequences except for the special prosecutor, Ken Starr, who was going after Bill Clinton for something else for his dealings with the Whitewater Company before he was president when he actually, a Whitewater investment, it wasn't a Whitewater Company. In any event, uh, none of this came to anything except harm to the Republican Party because it looked like uh, Bill Clinton was being uh, impeached over a sex act. And But he had his own special prosecutor and he lost his bar certification, his membership in the bar uh, Gerald Ford, as such a stand-up guy, there's a new biography coming out of Ford, which apparently talks about 
what a decent human being he was and what an underrated president. Uh, the few remember that Mr. Ford, while president, was accused of having pocketed uh, maritime union funds laundered through a Michigan Republican organization. Attorney General Edward H. Levy uh, assigned Charles E.C. Ruff, the last of the Watergate special prosecutors, to investigate. Ford knew only what he read in the press uh, or watched with growing anger at night, night after night. The three television networks led their evening news with the shadowy story. Uh, Richard Norton Smith writes in his new biography of Ford. In any event, nothing came of it. But uh, for President Reagan, the Iran-Contra thing almost led to serious impeachment charges. And then there were other situations. There's a guy named Ray Donovan who was chased by a special prosecutor. And uh, he very famously said, where do I go to get my reputation back? It was a sad story. With, with all of this going on, for someone to expect that this is actually an, an, an important crisis facing the Biden administration, I'll tell you an important crisis. The important crisis is the debt ceiling. If there isn't something that has worked out on that, there could be real damage to Americans everywhere. So what do you do to get our attention away from scandal, 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 to uh, more substantive issues? Well, there are numbers. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, do I believe that uh, Jack Smith, the uh, special counsel who is investigating President Trump, uh, has his work cut out for him? He does. And his work is not to make the handling of classified papers look like a uh, an indelible crime or an unforgivable crime or anything like that. It's to examine a series of controversies and much more importantly and much more menacingly to President Trump because it really could uh, destroy his campaign. And I don't believe that the uh, document scandal uh, can do that. Uh, it, probably the document scandal can can highlight the fact that I think the American people and it it doesn't really matter which party you're on isn't everybody kind of tired of the prospect of a groundhog day election oh we wake up again and it's Biden versus Trump again really uh nobody wants that and oh my gosh is it uh, important that we move away from it because Part of what Trump is still associated with is the notion that it was a stolen election and channeling and trying to challenge the validity of our entire electoral system. And sometimes it just misfires in a horrible way. Uh, the Associated Press reports that authorities in Albuquerque, New Mexico, said yesterday that a former Republican nominee who lost his bid for a state House seat in November, had been arrested in connection with a series of recent shootings at the homes and offices of a half dozen Democratic elected officials. Uh, Chief Harold Medina of the Agri Al Albuquerque Police Department said at a news conference that Solomon Pena was the mastermind. You know, somehow that term doesn't seem to apply to this guy. I'm sorry, he he's not a mastermind. 
Um, the uh, Solomon Pena was the mastermind, it says here, behind a conspiracy in which four other men were paid to shoot at the homes of two county commissioners and two state legislators, all Democrats. Pena lost the election in a landslide to an incumbent Democrat, Miguel Garcia, but refused to concede after making unfounded claims of election fraud. No one was injured in the shootings of the three residences, a workplace, and a campaign office in Albuquerque. That's, that's five different shootings with four different hired guns. Three of the shootings took place in December, and two occurred this month, this January. Uh, what a terrible thing. I mean, thank God nobody was injured or, or threatened, but that there's this threat uh, about what becomes of America from Carrie Lake. She still is challenging the results of the Arizona election. Meanwhile, the new governor, Katie Hobbs, who is <laughs> – she's a liberal Democrat – and, of course, she's going to try to cut back on choice and education where Arizona had made some progress. And she's probably going to undermine some of the progress in taxation that had been made by the previous Republican uh, governor, uh, uh, Ducey. In any event, Carrie Lake had this to say about what will happen if the appeals court doesn't step in and overturn her election loss and declare her – the winner. Uh, listen. We just need a judge to wake up and realize what's on the line here. And if we do not restore honest elections now, uh, our country will turn into a Venezuela. We have Venezuela style elections. And this is how you destroy a country. We just. Okay, this is how you destroy a country. And again, we talked about this yesterday briefly. In Lycoming County, Pennsylvania, there were 24 state employees who spent a total of 560 person hours recounting 60,000 votes in the county. And it was a county that Trump carried with almost 70 percent of the vote. It's a very Republican county. And they were looking for new votes for President Trump. He would have needed uh it's over 100,000, I believe, to change the outcome in Pennsylvania, and they found eight. Yeah, it was a, a, Trump got uh, eight more votes net than because Biden got more votes too. Trump had I got 15 new votes. Biden got eight new votes, so or seven new votes. So it it ended up being eight votes closer. And this is after spending literally millions of dollars and imagine 560 man hours in a Republican county. This kind of obsession. And then on the Democratic side, you have the obsession with Trump and Mar-a-Lago. And, and yes, there was a huge overreaction to the search warrant that was issued after a long dispute with President Trump. And it, clearly he wanted that reaction and uh, which had to do with uh, papers that didn't belong to him ending up in his house. Now, I'm sure we will find out uh, maybe uh, very likely by the time they're done, but it could take months. And if, for God's sake, it seems to me there's better things for the people that we have elected to represent us 
to spend their time doing. Uh, and the idea of the special counsels, uh, it's, it's honestly the fact that Gerald Ford had one, Ronald Reagan had one. It says Reagan's administration was investigated by more than a half dozen special prosecutors whose title changed to independent counsels under a 1978 law meant to give them more autonomy. They were looking at some of the president's closest advisors like Michael K. Deaver and Edmund Meese III, who became attorney general. But uh, everything led to changes after uh, – but not everything led to charges, pardon me. After being cleared, Raymond J. Donovan, who had been forced to resign as labor secretary, uh, famously asked, which office do I go to to get my reputation back? Uh, how about George Herbert Walker Bush? Well, he was also investigated and in some of the leftover material from, um, from the uh, Iran-Contra matter. How about Jimmy Carter? Jimmy Carter, I've said what you will about him. He's a religious guy. He doesn't seem to be noted for corruption. You know what the special counsel was supposed to investigate there? Was he had a chief of staff named Hamilton Jordan. Uh, and it's spelled Jordan, but he pronounces it Jordan. I've interviewed him. And may he rest in peace. But in any event... What happened with Hamilton Jordan, he's accused of using cocaine in Studio 54. So they were investigating him for the use of cocaine. Also, he allegedly had made a comment at a White House banquet when he had had a little bit too much to drink. Um, the uh, president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, was there. And uh, his wife, the very beautiful Jehan Sadat, and apparently he looked down her cleavage and said, oh, the twin pyramids of the Nile. Um, that was not a good thing. Okay, you got a special counsel. So can we change this history and maybe move forward to a different political focus? We'll talk about it. Help me, I'm addicted to the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, there are lots of candidates out there who claim, <laughs> and now, and thank God, not as many as people feared, but there are enough to make trouble like this uh, Solomon Pena in New Mexico, and then right next door in Arizona, you have the home of Carrie Lake. And uh, the, uh, the latest about Carrie Lake is... Uh, uh, to help prevent America from turning into Venezuela. And uh, again, you'd think that we would have some sympathy for some of the immigrants who are trying to come to the United States, leaving Venezuela and that evil socialist regime that they have over there, undemocratic socialist regime. They're not democratic socialists. These are Marxist uh, primitives. And uh, people like Nicolas Maduro are a disgrace and uh, Carrie Lake says we're going to be Venezuela unless the election, her election is overturned and she's named governor. But meanwhile, she's pondering another race for office. Uh, the, uh, the news, um, Carrie Lake is pondering a Senate run. What has Arizona done to deserve this? 
laugh if you want at the prospect of Carrie Lake running for the Senate in 2024, but here's the thing. She could actually win. They uh, did a survey from Blueprint Polling, which is an operation I've never heard of, but they imagined a scenario in which uh, Kristen Sinema, who's going to be up for re-election in 2024, remember, she left the Democratic Party formally. She is now an independent and it looks very unlikely that she could win the Democratic nomination because she's very unpopular in the Democratic Party because she stood in the way of some of the more extreme and awful things that uh, uh, Joe Biden was attempting to get accomplished. The survey was uh, released January 11th, and it imagined a scenario in which Kirsten Sinema, former Democrat turned independent who has held her Senate seat since 2019, runs for re-election against uh, uh, Gallego, who's a Democrat who's represented the state's third congressional district, and and Carrie Lake, assuming that she would win the Republican nomination. And uh, Lake, who rumors say is considering running for the seat but has not confirmed this, polled at 36 percent, according to Blueprint, well ahead of the two rivals. Gallego trailed closely with a 32 percent. So and cinema ran a distant third with 14 percent. In, in Arizona, I don't believe they have any rules as they do in Georgia and other states where you need to actually get a majority. If the vote is split like that, a Carrie Lake could win with her 36 percent, one third of the electorate. And given the fact that she would be an actual Republican, even though Chris Kirsten Sinema would try to attract some Republican votes. Uh, and it's, by the way, unclear whether she actually is going to run for re-election for the U.S. Senate. She could run for president, by the way. She wants to run an independent campaign for president as an independent. Uh, would she get some support? Well, you see, it, it, when you're running for president, uh, you can raise money on a campaign like that. And even though the best I, I would imagine Kirsten Sinema could ever get running as some kind of independent or third party or fourth party, or maybe they'll re, re, resurrect the old reform party of Ross Perot, and Sinema uh, would get 5%. Now, that's a lot. That's more than Ralph Nader got, but that handed the election to uh, George uh, W. Bush, as you may remember. There was an interesting colloquy, an exchange between uh, two columnists, um, both of whom have done some really interesting work over the years. And uh, the, the two guys who were engaged in the interchange were uh, Brett Stevens and David Brooks. And they were talking about the future of the Republican Party, and they both have been long-term Republicans who are now very disillusioned with where the party is and what is happening with the Republican Party, and that happens. The um, uh, uh, David Brooks says, to lead a Republican revival, I'd start in the states. And he's probably right. One of Al Frum's insights in leading the Democratic Leadership Council 
that was the group of so-called moderate Democrats who wanted to tug the Democratic Party away from the very extreme left-wing McGovern campaign, uh, more to the Bill Clinton direction. He was part of the uh, Democratic Leadership Council was the change was going to come from young and ambitious state officials like Bill Clinton, a new generation of politicians from moderate parts of the country. But the Democrats had a strong incentive to change because they lost a lot of elections between 1968 and 1992. The country is now so evenly divided, however, it takes only a slight shift to produce victory. Nobody has an incentive to rethink his or her party. If the party is to arrive, revive, and not crack up, it's probably going to take decades. <laughs> that doesn't sound good, does it? Um, yeah, they, I mean, there's another piece by Ezra Klein, which was very clever. He said that they used to say, and I remember when they used to say this, uh, Democrats fall in love. Republicans fall into line. That was a line about how you feel about your presidential candidates, that presidential candidates that Democrats put up like Bill Clinton or John Kennedy in 1960 uh, were objects of real veneration and enthusiasm. So Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall into line. I mean, even with somebody who was not the most exciting candidate in the world, Bob Dole, Republicans fell into line, even though he lost. In any event... He says, today it's not true. It's that uh, today it's that the Democrats fall into line, as they did. You could see this in the House election for Speaker, which at 212, 212, 212 for Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, Democrats fall into line. Republicans fall apart. And uh, this is what Brett Stevens says. You may be right about how long it takes, but I don't think it's going to do so as a party of the working class. The natural place for the GOP is as a party of economic freedom, social aspiration, and moral responsibility. A party of risers, if not always of winners. Its archetypal constituent is the small business owner. It wants less regulation because experience shows how well-intended ideas from above translate into onerous and stupid rules on the ground level. And the Republican Party thinks there should be consequences, not excuses, for unlawful behavior. It looks askance at policies like bail reform, so-called, and lax law enforcement at borders. The problem is that Trump turned the party into a single-purpose vehicle for cultural resentments. It doesn't help that coastal elites do so much on their own to feed these resentments and to stoke that national anger. Uh, so where do we go with uh, all of this pending? Well, one of the places we're going to go to is a huge confrontation that could have impact on your family, your life, your savings, your retirement accounts. This whole idea of the debt ceiling we're going to be talking with Peter Coy uh, of the uh, New York Times economics writer who has a decidedly conservative bent, and he knows we are spending too much. But now, what does that mean in terms of handling the debt ceiling? We will be getting to that and more here on The Medved Show. 
1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. MichaelMedved.com. The greatest show on God's green earth. Whoa, how, how gross and evil is that? It's the Michael Medved Show. Well, Al Gore is back, and one way to revive the Republican Party is, uh, I think that uh, Al could do it. Uh, he is uh, such a um, flawed, to put it mildly, candidate for office. I, I remember when he was running for president, and it's completely nuts. I mean, he had his own George Santos problem, which people forget about. He uh, imagined that he was the leading force in the development of the Internet, which, remember that? Um, and he never quite said, I invented the Internet. He said, I was the leading force in uh, helping to make progress to establish the Internet, something like that. In any event, he also imagined that he, he and Tipper, who later split up, were the inspiration for the book Love Story. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Al, Al is back, but Al has no answers on the federal budget. The, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal reports this, and they have a useful graph on this uh, where it shows the deficit just completely going wild. And, and again, it, it was in the process of going wild before the pandemic, but the pandemic intensified everything. As a deficit is, is double uh, – where it it used to be. And I don't mean the deficit, I mean the debt, the national debt. We're talking about $31 trillion. Um, Washington Dateline, House Republicans are gearing up for an intraparty fight over cutting spending, a clash that will help shape the GOP's position in a confrontation with Democrats over raising the debt ceiling. Republicans have said they're determined to cut spending despite Democrats' objections but first, they have to produce their own plan, pitting Republicans who want to protest, protect military spending against those who see such expenditures as fair game in any negotiations alongside cuts to domestic programs. Republicans will also need to decide whether they want to pursue money-saving changes to Medicare and Social Security, which many GOP lawmakers would like to tackle but take uh, taking such a step is seen as politically perilous. It's not politically perilous, especially with the prospect of a recession coming. Well, it's politically suicidal. And uh, yes, you can clean up Social Security, but anything that comes across like, okay, we're going to take away Social Security for some of the most reliable GOP voters, this doesn't help. This is uh, what I thought was fascinating is they break down, the Wall Street Journal, the major categories of federal spending for fiscal year 2023. That's money that's already been spent. It's already committed. This is not what they are planning to spend. This is what they have spent. And Social Security is 23% of the national budget. Let that sink in. So full fourth. Uh, Medicare is another 14%. So that's combined, it's over a third. Uh, 23%, 14%, 14%, you've got 
Then there's Medicaid, uh, CHIP, and uh, ACA subsidies. That's Affordable Care Act subsidies. That's more medical care. So now you're at 49%. And you notice you haven't gotten to defense yet at all. Other mandatory cuts, 14%. Other mandatory programs. Uh, discretionary spending, 16%. And then the total of defense department spending, it's uh, 14%. And then net interest is 8%. So if you go after that 14% on defense expenditures, that not only damages the future of uh, what's happening in, in Ukraine right now, but it makes America much more vulnerable to an increasingly crazy world. And right now you even have some Democrats who are saying, and rightfully so, no, you can't cut defense. You have to build up defense. And to try to score a point here by going after that 14% of the national budget is seems to me destructive. Now, of course, Al Gore wants to take all that money and spend it on, well, his favorite issue, climate change. He uh, was talking to the World Economic Forum at Davos, uh, Switzerland, and he sounded at his best like this. Enough already. Enough. And I I don't want to get sidetracked onto what needs to happen, but we need to scale up climate finance, but we need desperately to scale down anti-climate finance. And we are still subsidizing the burning of fossil fuels globally at a rate 42 times larger than the subsidies for the shift toward renewables and EVs, uh, etc. We need new leadership at the World Bank. We need them to uh, scale up the leverage and vastly increase the amounts that are are committed. And we need to rein in the anti-climate activities of the fossil industry. Enough already. Enough. But I'm not satisfied. You ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, No, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, By the way, front page of the Wall Street Journal today. Um, Electric vehicles rise to what percentage of all new cars sold around the world? It's 10%, which is shocking. Uh, Dateline Berlin, electric vehicle sales crossed a key global uh, milestone Last year, achieving market sales of around 10% for the first time, driven mainly by strong growth in China and Europe, according to data and estimates. Uh, But it's extraordinary to hear that and to see the EVs uh, becoming so popular. The uh, EVs now are, they say, a... uh, For the full year, fully electric vehicles accounted for 11% of total car sales in Europe and 19% in China, according to LMC Automotive, combined with plug-in hybrid vehicles, which have rechargeable batteries but also small combustion engines. The share of electric vehicles sold in Europe rose to 20.3% of the total last year. Now, again, for all of this desperation that we're dealing with. Oh, yeah, Greta Thunberg got detained by German police at a protest over the expansion of a coal mine in the West German village of Lutzerath. Uh, This is the second... How dare you? How dare you? The second time Thunberg had been detained at the site, police spokesperson Christoph Hulz told 
CNN today. She was part of a large group of protesters that broke through a police barrier and encroached on a coal pit, which authorities have not been able to secure entirely. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, then there's this, another Davos speaker, Professor Alan Dangur, who is director at Climate and Health for the Wellcome Trust, said that um, we have a mental health crisis, which I think a lot of people feel when they look around the world. Blah, blah, blah. And that it's global warming that is causing all the mental breakdowns. Uh, Listen. We have a massive ecosystem mediated pathway between climate change and health is the impact on our mental health. And we're really only beginning to scrape the surface there. And there is no health without mental health, as my mental health colleagues re- repeatedly remind me. And we see these two, these, these two, path, these two, it's a two-directional pathway. Number one, young people are petrified about the future, and that is having a substantial impact on their mental health. Mm-hmm. And number two, the way the environment is changing, especially uh, in, in those places with the most vulnerable communities, has a dramatic impact on the mental health of those populations, typically indigenous groups. Oh, man, I've never figured that one out. Okay, uh, basically, if there is a problem with mental health, do you think it might have something to do with the fact that there's a deliberate attempt to scare these kids in school, even when they're very young, even when they're in kindergarten and first grade, and make them believe that uh, uh, all of a sudden life isn't worth living and there is no future. I mean, one of the the points, my, my wife and I did a book, which I still think is a very important book, and uh, Diane did most of the work on it. And uh, the book is called Saving Childhood. It came out in 1997. And the subtitle is Protecting Our Children for the National Assault on Innocence. And we have a section in there about climate alarmism, uh, teaching kids all this stuff that has been so widely debunked about uh, population bombs going off. Yes, Paul Ehrlich, this means you. And yes, there's a major story that we will cover today about the population bomb devastating China in the other direction because they don't have enough population. For the first time in 60 years, the Chinese population is going down, and it's a disaster which we, God willing, will avoid in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Enough already! Enough!